As a doctor, I'm used to a small group of four or five key symptoms characterising a disease, maybe with some minor variants. In contrast, long COVID is an ill-defined condition with over 200 possible symptoms. It doesn't sound like a regular disease at all. A consensus is growing though, that there is more than one type of long COVID. There seems to be a predominantly respiratory form, a cardiovascular form and a brain form or neurological form. This neurological form of long COVID is characterised by brain fog, an inability to think clearly, a loss of concentration and focus and an inability to execute complex tasks like following a recipe. Some patients get better, some haven't yet and every day particularly in those who are unvaccinated, hundreds of thousands more people are becoming infected by the virus that causes COVID-19, increasing their risk of developing long-term neurological symptoms. This is In Conversation from Medical News Today. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit. In this episode, we'll be exploring neurological long COVID. How can this little understood condition be described? I was helping my children cook a meal and I said, shall I peel the, um, oh, what are they? Pointy orange things. And of course, they're carrots. You know, I just was really struggling to search for the names of things. There are competing theories, but why might these symptoms manifest themselves? My working hypothesis is possibly that Neuronal dysfunction is because of persistent viral infection or antigenic stimulation. And what does the future hold for patients? We don't know if this is a persistent or progressive problem. But first, to understand what life is like for a patient with a neurolong COVID, I spoke to Dr. Kerry Smith. Hi, my name is Dr. Kerry Smith. I'm a GP and I practice in Chichester, England and I'm 49 years old. So I um, got um, acute COVID in March 2020. I was diagnosed with long COVID um, in September 2020. I've had quite a few physical problems, but the thing that's really preventing me going back to work as a GP is my cognitive issues or brain fog. Um, Sorry. Sorry, that's, you see, I lose my train of thought, Henry. That's the problem. (laughs) Um, With my brain fog, um, I have problems concentrating, keeping up with conversations, multitasking, and I have difficulties with my memory. So when did you first become aware that your brain wasn't functioning as well as it used to? In the six weeks after, um, it was like... (laughs) When I was cooking, well, I wasn't cooking the meal. I was helping my children cook a meal. And I said to them, shall I peel the, um, oh, what are they? Pointy orange things. And of course, they're carrots. You know, I just was really struggling to search for the names of things. And if people were talking, I just couldn't follow the conversation. And I would say, have you asked me that already? I, I just don't, I really didn't know what was going on. So I just sort of noticed that things weren't right. Have you ever had any formal tests of your problems with thinking? No, I've pushed and pushed and pushed and tried to get formal cognitive testing, but I just haven't been able to get it at all on the NHS. 
I was so desperate and about June, I found out about the Great British Wellbeing Survey. It was a new study looking to how COVID-19 was impacting people's thinking. And I found that my short-term memory and my medium-term memory was worse than 50% of the population. And my ability to understand and interpret um, words in conversation was also less than 50% of the population. Gosh, that must have been quite devastating. It, it was, but I mean, I, I'm lucky in that I joined a Doctors with Long Covid group quite early into my illness because it, it was incredibly lonely um, because all the time all we were t- being told was it's a mild flu-like illness for two weeks and yet there were so many of us who were still unwell months later and luckily I managed to find this group and we all did this survey and we were all getting the same sort of results so yeah it is devastating but it was reassuring to know that it was happening to others as well. Dr Kerry Smith, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's my pleasure. You can follow Kerry's journey with Neurolong Covid on her Instagram blog, at rosecottagedoc. There's a link in the show notes. Joining me to discuss the complex and evolving science behind Neurolong Covid are... I'm Gabriel de Rauskin. I'm Distinguished University Professor of Neurology at the University of Texas Health San Antonio. My name is Lavanya Vishwabharati. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University in Chicago in the Department of Neurology. Gabriel and Lavanya, welcome. So we're going to be talking about the effect of long COVID on the brain. I'm using this term long COVID, but what should we actually be calling this syndrome? I don't think that there is an accepted nomenclature yet. Uh, I sit at the work group for NeuroCovid at the World Health Organization, and not even there we have a common language for this. The notion of long COVID assumes that the person had an acute cold. So you are having a continuance of symptoms that had an onset at the time of the acute infection. The idea of NeuroCovid, on the other hand, may or may not have an implication for acute respiratory or systemic illness. You may have the de novo emergence of neurological symptoms, regardless of what was the status of the acute illness. So they don't necessarily mean the same thing. And uh, we're finding, the more we look into this, likely that both can happen. What do you think of the term neuropask? Because I feel like clinicians are often now using the PASC terminology and, you know, it's kind of up in the air. Should we use neurocovid or is that referring to acute infection or et cetera, et cetera? But as a clinician, uh, what are your feelings on PASC? PASC is the American way of saying long COVID. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Americans <laughs> like acronyms. Long COVID was too simplistic and too... Too plain language for the common usage here, so we had to come up with a very complicated acronym. Post-acute sequelae of COVID, again, like long COVID, assume that you had a COVID illness. Neuro-COVID, on the other side, you may have an asymptomatic initial phase and develop neurological symptoms later. In my mind, this is an important distinction, and we should keep both those concepts alive for the time being, because both of them seem to be occurring. 
Okay, fine. Thank you. What are the typical symptoms of someone who has a long COVID brain fog? I'm afraid there aren't very typical symptoms in the sense that you will find the uniform description of them. There are at least two types of presentations that are commonly described both in the literature and in clinical cases. One of them is in younger individuals, more typical brain fog. And folks who have that type of experience describe difficulty concentrating, difficulty maintaining attention, and difficulty doing tasks that they found very easy or very automatic to do before. The second presentation, which is in my mind more worrisome, of course, more commonly in people over 60 years of age or over 65 years of age. And it's a much more dense memory impairment with a component of uh, also executive dysfunction and language impairment that is very reminiscent of Alzheimer's disease. That's interesting that you mention Alzheimer's disease because Dr. Kerry Smith she describes her symptoms as the dementia dementia that that she's aware aware of. So moving on now, can you talk to me about what sort of people are more likely to get long COVID or long neuro-COVID? That again depends on the age group. The typical brain fog happens in younger individuals who have suffered significantly more severe from respiratory and systemic COVID. On the other hand, Older individuals may or may not have had an acute severe COVID. In fact, in a couple of semi-published studies, you know, presented at meetings, for instance, at the Alzheimer's Association International Conference recently, including our own data, we have found that people over 60 years of age who get infected with the virus are at very high risk of developing this dementia-like syndrome. So the profile may well be quite different. One of the things that we do know is that having an APOE phenotype puts you at risk of both having more severe acute infection and developing cognitive symptoms later. So it may well be that both of those are relevant, yes. So just so I'm clear, you found that people who are already at risk of dementia from having one of the forms of the APOE gene that are more likely to get severe COVID-19 and long neuro-COVID. Can you start by telling us what is APOE? Apolipoprotein E is a blood protein that in humans has three possibilities, three isoforms as they are technically called. Number two, three, and four. APOE4 is the least frequent in the European population, but it's the one that carries the highest risk of developing Alzheimer's disease when you carry that genotype, particularly if both of your chromosomes carry the same information. So if you are an APOE44, you are at much higher risk of having Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and as it turns out, you are at much higher risk of having severe COVID illness and neurological consequences from COVID. And can you tell me about your research around loss of sense of smell and neuro-COVID and brain fog? Sure. Well, the loss of sense of smell was actually what prompted my interest in COVID in the, in the first place. I do movement disorders in my clinical practice and Alzheimer's disease or dementia. And in both those types of patients, loss of smell is a very prominent early sign of the illness. When we started seeing the news coming out from initially China, then Spain, 
that patients with COVID, with this new disease, had a very prominent uh, loss of smell, that prompted our attention to the possibility that the virus might be a neurotropic respiratory virus. You said neurotropism. Uh, let's be clear, that's the ability of the virus to infect brain tissue. Yes, this has turned out to be true. And once it's seen, it can from there, at least in experimental animals, this is less clear in humans, move inside the brain and cause all sorts of havoc. So in animal experiments, you're saying the virus that causes COVID-19 can actually get inside and infect the brain. So what do you think that's telling us in terms of neuro-long COVID? So on the basis of that initial finding, we became very interested in tracking the relationship between the severity of the loss of smell and the possibility of long-term cognitive impairment in individuals who have been infected, particularly older individuals that have been infected. And what we have found is that indeed, the severity of the loss of smell six months out from recovery from the initial infection is actually a much better predictor of cognitive impairment in older adults. We're not talking about younger individuals with brain fog. This is older adults with the, if you will, dementia-like syndrome. In those individuals, persistent loss of sense of smell is a much better predictor of cognitive impairment than severity of the acute illness. Levanya, you wanted to come in. Yeah, so... This is very interesting to hear from a different clinical perspective. I agree with you that there is a lot of evidence to show that you can detect virus in the olfactory bulb. In fact, a paper from Science Translational Medicine did seem to suggest that you could detect viral particles, at least, or pieces of the virus in the olfactory epithelium of COVID patients. Do you think the virus can infect other parts of the brain from there beyond the olfactory bulb, that part of the brain that's involved in smell? So yeah, the ability of the virus to invade and persist in other areas of the brain is much less supported, at least in human studies, and whether it's the brain stem all the way to the cortex. Because what we've seen with a previous SARS-CoV-1 infection, the pandemic in China in 2002 and 2003, is that if you took post-mortem autopsies from patients who had died from SARS-CoV-1, you could very readily detect virus in the brainstem, whereas here it's, it's very up and down. Some papers say you can, some studies say that you can't, and it's just really not very reliable. My working hypothesis is possibly that Neuronal dysfunction is being caused by inflammation and possibly with some kind of autoimmune or hyperinflammatory component that's because of persistent viral infection or antigenic stimulation. And they could be from a different area of, of the body than the brain itself. I agree with you, actually. I think that everything you said is quite accurate. There are a few caveats to that, and this is not to say that you are not entirely correct and that your hypothesis not may prove to be true. But I think you have to consider a couple of alternatives. I agree that the virus doesn't seem to persist in the central nervous system of humans. But the presence in the olfactory bulb for a period of time may be enough to trigger a chain of events that will lead to an ongoing neurodegenerative process not necessarily related to immunity. The typical example of this would be prion behavior. Once you have a prion anywhere in the brain, the prions spread. So the alternative hypothesis that we are not necessarily testing at this point because we are not doing any molecular work, but assuming that can be behind the progression of illness in adults with the dementia-like symptoms, 
is that such a thing is happening, that the presence of the virus in the olfactory bulb triggers a, through molecular mimicry a misfolding event, and that that misfolding event either already present, because it may well be, we don't know this, that the people, since they are APOE4 positive, many of them, may well be that the people who end up developing this syndrome were going to develop Alzheimer's dementia at that point in their future, but they're doing it much, much earlier and much, much faster. Most of these people are in their 60s when there shouldn't be this type of problem yet. I mean, only 6% of the population, 60 to 70, has symptoms of Alzheimer's. And we are seeing this in 50 or 60% of those individuals. So it's a tenfold increase. Broadly, you've mentioned two theories. One is that the coronavirus invades and persists in the brain. And the other is that the coronavirus ends up misfolding proteins and this triggers Alzheimer's-like symptoms. But Lavagna, what are the immunological hypotheses for the existence of long neurocovid? Yeah, so I've always found that there are a lot of unexpected links between the brain and the immune system. And the reason why I particularly favor an immune-mediated hypothesis of neuronal dysfunction during long neurocovid has to do with the ability for your immune cells to get anywhere. They don't stay in one place. They go everywhere. They're monitoring everything, even the brain. And in like hyper-inflammatory situations, you can have immune cells that can get into the brain and around the brain in the meningeal areas. And what can then happen is either through direct interaction of these immune cells with your brain cells or with basically these immune cells secreting various factors, both of these can impact brain function. There is a lot of evidence in other models to show that whether those secreted factors or the the cells themselves getting into the brain actually induce cell death. Basically, immune cells can kill cells that are important for brain function. This hypothesis is that either the immune cells themselves or chemicals that they secrete are killing the brain cells. How do you think that's happening? One really cool thing about T cells is that they can change the way they behave depending on what they see. So if there's no inflammation, there's no viral infection, there's nothing like that, they're just going to be quiet. They're not going to do anything. On the other hand, if there's just a ton of inflammation that's coming from an infection or, or some other kind of even allergic inflammation and things like that, T cells can broadly become activated. And what ends up happening then is that there could be a small subset of T cells that are going to be activated in response to your body itself as opposed to the virus. And so this is one way called bystander activation that we can induce something called autoimmunity. Another way is what Professor uh, Deraskin was saying, which was something called molecular mimicry. So the T cells get overexcited and just like a bystander swept up along with the crowd, they get agitated and be a bit random in what they attack. But you've also mentioned another way in which the T cells can get involved and that's called molecular mimicry. What does that mean? Okay, so you have a virus and it's expressing all these proteins and some parts of those proteins look like what's in your body itself. So instead of just having virus-specific immune cells activated, they also activate body-specific immune cells and that's called molecular mimicry to induce autoimmune mechanisms. So in my research, originally I was going in here thinking, the reason why these long COVID, neurocovid symptoms are persisting for so long is because of autoimmune stuff. My data so far showed that I was kind of 
wrong <laughs> in my initial hypothesis, because interestingly, what we found was that it kind of looked based on the immune response that the long COVID patients might have a persistent infection that was underlying these symptoms. And so the way that we kind of found that was if you go to the clinic for an antibody test, right, you're going to get a serology test for COVID. They will test you for two different types of antibodies. One is against the spike protein, which is what the vaccine is also against. And the second one is against the nucleocapsid protein. Both of these proteins are expressed by the COVID-19 virus. Now, the interesting thing is that studies have shown that this nucleocapsid antibody response fades within about 60 days after you get a PCR positive test. So a patient can come in three months down the line, four months down the line, they can say, did I have COVID? If you test for anti-N protein, nucleocapsid antibody, you're not going to find it. But that's not the same with spike protein. So you can detect the anti-spike protein antibody for up to a year after your initial COVID infection pretty reliably. So basically what that means is if you have anti nucleocapsid antibody, you probably had COVID recently. In contrast, what we found was that with long COVID patients, the vast majority of them seemed to have anti-nucleocapsid antibody for many, many, many months after their initial COVID diagnosis. And that seems to support the study that you mentioned earlier, where researchers found ongoing infection around the olfactory epithelium also months after the initial infection. Yeah, this was actually correlated with a higher T-cell helper response for antibody production in these patients as well. And we could see this up to like 400 days after an initial COVID diagnosis. This is preliminary, of course, because I think that this kind of work needs a lot more patience. However, this suggests that they might still have an infection. When I spoke to Dr. Kerry Smith, she told me how her symptoms changed after receiving the COVID-19 vaccines. It did provoke a, a relapse in my physical symptoms, so I was more fatigued, more dizzy. But the really noticeable thing for me was my cognitive function really declined. And it did say for a good six weeks after my vaccination. Kerry told me that this happened after both vaccines. Navanya, what do you think is the mechanism behind this response? This is largely speculative, though I do have some data. It seems to be quite variable as to whether neuro-COVID patients seem to get better after vaccination, stay exactly the same, or get worse. All I can say is that when I actually look at T-cell responses to the vaccine in long COVID patients versus healthy COVID convalescents who have no lingering symptoms, they are vastly divergent. They look very different. They stay very different over time. Um, I'm looking at these longitudinal responses over about four months in the first paper that, that we have up. And it's basically looking like while there's a spike in the T-cell response for healthy COVID convalescence, which goes down pretty quickly, it stays elevated for a very long period of time in the neuro-COVID long haulers. And for me, if, if you put all the data together, it's, it's possibly pointing towards a persistent infection. We know, based on Pfizer's own data and Moderna's own data, that the mRNA vaccines are not inducing the best T-cell memory response. They're inducing great antibody responses, which is why they're so effective at protecting you against infection within the first six months. But the T-cell response is not as good or as long-lasting with the mRNA vaccines. But in contrast to that finding, what we're seeing in long COVID patients is 
a sustained elevation in the interferon gamma-specific T-cell response over like at least four months, which is very different than any other population. So that sustained interferon gamma response may be what caused Kerry's symptoms to worsen on people like her. Um, Gabrielle, what are your thoughts on this vaccine conundrum? I think Lavanya and I agree on this component. Is that in younger individuals, Rainfo seems to be associated with uh, an enhanced inflammatory response with or without autoimmunity. You provoke a bigger response to the immune process, of course, you're going to get worse. It's, it's almost arithmetic, you know, it has to happen. Now, that's not to say that that's going to be persistent. And again, we know relatively little about what happens in these younger individuals who have brain fog. In fact, my overall impression from the literature and from my own patients is that they do get better. This is very different from the older individuals with the dementia-like syndrome who appear to be getting worse. Gosh. Finally, Dr. Kerry Smith had some questions she wanted to ask you. Firstly, One of my biggest worries is that I'm not going to recover. Kerry wants to know whether she will ever recover. The proper and honest answer is we don't know. But in individuals who are younger and who present with this milder form of cognitive complaints that are frequently predicted by or preceded by anxiety and mood changes and that affect primarily concentration and attention and perhaps a little bit of executive function, those individuals appear to recover rather rapidly within a few months after recovery from the infection. That picture may be radically different in older individuals with the other type of process. And I don't know the answer to that. But the reason precisely that the biobank data referred to it as dementia-like symptoms and not dementia is exactly that. Is that we don't know if this is a persistent or progressive problem. It may well be that it will recover as well. Okay, and she had another question which is kind of linked to this. People like myself who've got cognitive dysfunction following COVID-19 infection, will we get early onset dementia or Alzheimer's? That's the $1 million question. I wish I could answer it for her, uh, either positively or negatively, because if, you know, if, if we knew that that was going to be the case, that would open the door for all sorts of clinical trials. We know now that Alzheimer's disease is not the, the black box that it used to be, and we may have in the very near future uh, disease-modifying treatments. But I don't know the answer to that, and, and it would be dishonest on my part to say that it did. We are doing the research. We are doing the best work we can to try to answer that very question. And finally. We're 18 months in now, and we're really patiently waiting for research to come out on this. I just wanted to know what we could be doing now to try and help ourselves. What would you do to keep yourself well and give yourself the best chance of getting better? I'm in a clinic and I answer that question all the time. So I I, I feel that I can... We know a number of things that we call brain health interventions that are quite helpful in maintaining brain function even when you have a progressive neurodegenerative disease. And this applies to Parkinson's disease, to Alzheimer's disease, to frontal temporal dementia, and the like. And those interventions are regular daily exercise, a healthy diet. Third, you might have to maintain cognitive and social engagement. We have strong data in experimental animals and in humans, in patients, 
demonstrating that if you combine them, you can reduce your risk of dementia by 40%. Lavanya, as a researcher rather than a clinician, what do you think can be done? So there's one thing that I've been kind of wondering if clinicians would try to adopt. If we take it seriously that this long COVID could be a result of persistent infection, then shouldn't we do routine testing? much more so than we already have been. And I don't just mean via nasal swabs, because very often you can take the nasal swab and you can't find the virus, but it's possible you can find the virus somewhere else. And so one possible viral reservoir could be the gut. So if you could take at times like a broad sampling of stool sample testing and to test if the virus is still there, I think what this kind of tells me from a molecular perspective is that Similar to what was done with HIV, perhaps we could do research into understanding how to block viral replication as a therapy. The first question is to say, do long COVID patients have virus in them for a long period of time? And can we find that out by a test? Navanya Vishwabharati, Gabriel de Rauskin, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been wonderful. Thanks also to Dr. Kerry Smith and to you for listening. You can read more on the theories behind long neuro-COVID on our website. That's medicalnewstoday.com. And keep up to date with all the latest research as these hypotheses begin to be tested by scientists around the world at our COVID-19 News Hub. I'm Dr. Hilary Geit and this is a Hive is Radio production from Medical News Today.